The scripture reading for today is Psalm 88. I'll give you a few moments to find that if you'd like, and there are also Red Pew Bibles for you to use. Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, according to Mahalath Leamanth, a maskel of Heman, the Ezraite. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is, soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? If your love declare, is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction... I are your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new with us, we've been preaching through the book of Psalms this summer. Let's pray and then come to this psalm. God and Father. Be near us as we sit in your word this morning. Be near us sinners as we wrestle with it, and be near me a sinner as I seek to preach it. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, preaching this text is going to be particularly complicated for me. And so, instead of offering some observations or a story or something to start, I just want to acknowledge some stuff. Um... So we're preaching through the book of Psalms, and I've been doing it by trying to choose kind of representative Psalms of the different kinds of Psalms that, you know, you would encounter. And um, unless you're new with us, you're aware that our family is in the midst of some significant things that are going on, um, a significant season of darkness. Um, Elizabeth has cancer, and it is terminal, and while we, of course, hope and pray that the Lord might heal her, We also acknowledge that he very well might not, and we're measuring the future we can expect in years you can count on one hand. And I mention that because um, reflecting and walking through this text with you guys this morning is going to be personal in a way 
I mean, every sermon is sort of personal, right? You ought to apply it to yourself first. You ought to sit under God's Word and walk through it with people when you preach it. But most of the time, you try not to walk too much in that because you want to keep the attention on the text. You know, you're not preaching your life. But I don't know how to walk through this text and this type of psalm without kind of reflecting on some of that. So I want to say that up front. There are a lot of ways to describe that darkness, that grief and sadness and pain. Um, I always picture it in this season as like this this kind of shadow monster that lurks in the corner of your eyes, where most of the time you try not to look at it because you think it, it'll only attack you if you look right at it, but it's always there. It's always you're a little distracted, and sometimes you can't help but glance over, and then it rears up and jumps out at you. And that's kind of been our experience of this season as you... As we hear some announcement of some anniversary that we probably won't reach or see some old couple happily walking down the street, it jumps out and we're suddenly confronted by what we expect the future may well hold. But as I describe that, I don't think that's an unusual experience. Um, As a pastor, I often tell people that there's really two things that I get to see that most people don't that I wish they could. You know, when I think about people. One of those things is these hidden beauties that are often missed. There are people that do all these beautiful and generous things for each other that, you know, they, that nobody else knows about because they're being done generously, and I get to often get glimpses of that because I see behind the scenes. But the other thing that I wish that people could see is how broken people are. So many of us have lost dear ones or are facing grim diagnoses or have been abused and wounded or struggle in unbelievable ways. We carry those griefs in our heart, and I often get to see glimpses of that too. And that's heavy, but I sometimes just wish that other people could see that as well because, um, because too often I think we feel like we're the only ones in that place. Too often we look around and don't see that in each other. And I wish that we could. And that, I suspect, is why the book of Psalms has songs like this one. Remember, we've been saying each week, this is the, the book of Psalms is the hymn book of ancient Israel, right? This is the 150 songs they would get together in gathered worship and sing. And um, some of those so- songs, we said, don't really fit with the modern you know, worship genre that we're used to. And this psalm is a good example of that. It is what scholars call a psalm of a lament. In other words, a song of sadness. And there's actually a ton of different psalms of lament in the book of Psalms. Some of them are lamenting underneath God's wrath and judgment for sin and confession. Some of them are lamenting, crying for help in the face of enemies. And some, like this one, don't have a clear circumstance. They are just cries of despair and desolation from the heart. And I suspect that's because it's really meant for all of us to join with. And this psalm does not wrap things up in a neat package either, the way we might like in our modern worship music. Even when modern Christian music is kind of sad, it tends to like, you know, it's that for like the first two verses, and then the bridge comes in or something, and then it's all better. But this psalm starts in the darkness, and it walks in the darkness, and it ends in the darkness. So what do we do with that? Well, here's what I want us to do. First, I want to just walk through this song of sadness and try to feel the weight of what it's saying. And then I want us to reflect on a couple of things that I think it teaches us about our lives. So let's start. Um, The first two verses of Psalm 88 are a cry to God for help. 
We'll come back to them. And then verse 3 plunges right into things. He says, I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm overwhelmed with troubles. The Hebrew literally says, my soul is stuffed full of troubles. It's the word you would use for, like, you know, having gorged yourself so that you can't eat anymore, except instead of food, it is sorrow that you are ready to burst from. My life draws near to death, which is one of the consistent images of this psalm. Maybe it's because the psalmist feels like death is literally near from sickness or some enemy, but he also uses it as an image more generally for suffering. So verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit, meaning the grave. I am like one without strength. A side note on how this psalm views death. All of the Bible is equally God's word, but there is kind of this unfolding of things and this clarifying of things as time goes on. And so when the psalmist discusses death, he's using the Hebrew word is sheol, which is just the word for the grave. Um, It's just picturing death as this place of silence and nothingness. And that's not saying that that's all that there is, right? We recognize there's this hope of rest with the Lord and of resurrection in Scripture. I mean, the Old Testament extends that hope just like the New Testament. But what this psalm is doing is using death as we experience it in this world as an image for sorrow, right? That, yes, there's this hope of deliverance and resurrection, but death as we experience it in this world is the great enemy. It rips people away from us. It leaves darkness and silence where once there was life and light. Um, and that's the image the psalmist is using for, for this sorrow. So maybe just worth saying, I think we could maybe use a little bit more of that sense of the, the wrongness of death when we talk to people, at least some of us. I think I often hear Christians who so easily, you know, they, they, they come to a grieving person and they just say, you know, like, hey, it's okay, death is no big deal, they're in heaven now. And that is true, biblically, but, but don't say that at first, because this perspective of death is very biblical, too. That death is a, you know, is a great, like, loss and darkness. It's a pit and a place of emptiness. And so we should find hope in that ultimate promise, but we should also acknowledge with people that, yes, there's something terrible in this thing that we're confronting. People were not meant to, to, to die in God's design. And so our first response to that should always be to just say, I am sorry, this is not how it's meant to be. The psalm then continues with that image of death in verse 5. He says, I am set apart with the dead, like your slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. So he's using death as a picture of isolation now. We're set apart from the world by our suffering, feeling dead to it or cut off from it. We feel like we can't taste God's life-giving presence. And then verse 6, in case you don't feel it yet, you've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Then starting in 7, the psalm shifts the imagery. It takes that, that word depths and starts to use a different picture rather than depth. It says, your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. So now the psalmist's picture of his sorrow is drowning being swept under an ocean of grief and sadness. A lot of people I know describe grieving that way, that um, it's these waves that come and come and one breaks and you kind of struggle back up to the surface to catch your breath and then another one hits you again and you're plunged back under. Verse 8, you've taken from me my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. 
And that's a picture of isolation. Maybe he's just describing the feeling of isolation that pain and sorrow can create. Even if there's people all around us, we can feel alone and cut off because of our grief. Maybe he's also describing a thing that happens in our world. One of the tragedies for people walking in darkness is that it can cause other people to tire of helping them walk through it while they're still stuck in the middle of it. People in long-term mourning for a loss or dealing with lifelong struggles with something like depression often feel this, where at first people are supportive and helpful, but then after a little while they get tired of it. And it's like, why aren't you better yet? Why isn't this fixed yet? And, um, and they, they grow distant. That's because oftentimes the love we show people is not the unconditional love of Jesus, but rather conditional love, where we love people because we're getting things out of it. And when someone is in the darkness and we realize we can't get anything out of them anymore, we move away from them. And that's something that we need to own as wrong in our hearts when we do it um, and pursue those people. So the psalmist feels alone, maybe because people are just waiting for him to change, but he says, it cannot change in verse 9. It doesn't lift. He feels trapped. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. In these first verses there, we see the psalmist wrestling with the circumstances, and that's the ultimate. I'm trapped by these circumstances, and already I think we feel that weight. Um... And I think if we were writing this psalm, right, in modern Christianity, maybe we could stomach it up to here, but now is the point where we feel like, okay, we need to, we need to take the, the hopeful turn now, right? We need to say, but it's going to be okay. And that is not what happens. Instead, the psalmist turns from looking at those circumstances and looking at his grief, and he starts wrestling directly with God. He asks God these questions in verses 10 through 12. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness, or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? All of which in a sense is bargaining with God, right? Which is something that people who grieve often talk about doing and experiencing. But deeper than that, it's the psalmist trying to get his head around God's plan with those questions. He's saying, look, what do you want? Do you want praise? Do you want faithfulness? Do you want people to know you and see your glory? How on earth is this darkness accomplishing those things? And notice that the Bible doesn't actually answer the questions the psalmist is asking. I think people are very fond of trying to tell you God's purposes when you're struggling or suffering and point out what God is doing. And it is true that God is working goodness in the midst of that darkness. But there's often two problems with the way that people do it. One is that while we have the promise that God is ultimately working good, we do not know how he is doing it. His ways are beyond us. In this psalm, God never explains why the psalmist is experiencing the things that he is experiencing. In places like the book of Job, where Job suffers enormously and wrestles with it, Job never gets an explanation for why he's walking through what he's walking through. It is true that God is working good in the end. It is true that he works beauty from our actions. But we should not pretend that we always know how that works, especially when it's other people's ashes that we're talking about. And the reason that is destructive is because while God is ultimately working good, It doesn't make the darkness not dark and terrible. 
Because that's how we use it, I think. We try to say, look at this good that's being worked, so you shouldn't feel so bad. But again, that is not how Scripture treats those things. Those terrible things are not okay. The reality of being a human being in the midst of the darkness is that um, is that you can't make it all right. I mean, people, people tell me that there are good things, right, in the season of life that the Lord has put Elizabeth and I through, that he's worked things in the world. Um, you know, as we've walked through it, he's worked things in, in us, in me, maybe made me softer or wiser or whatever. Um, and some of that might well be true, but that does not change the terribleness of the thing that we are walking through. And it, frankly, it doesn't change the fact that I would gladly have the world be a little less good and be a little less wise and soft if it means that we could find healing. And that's the point of the psalmist wrestling and of these unanswered questions, that while God is at work, the psalmist cannot see it. Verse 13, then, is another cry to God, um, which God continues seemingly not to hear in verse 14. And in verse 15, the psalmist says, From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. So this isn't just some momentary trouble. The psalmist feels like it's been for his whole life. And maybe that's just expressing that psychological thing that happens when you're in the darkness, where it makes it hard to remember the times that life was bright and happy. But more than that, it's probably also just expressing a reality that people in this world often suffer for the long term. Verses 16 and 17 use that image of water again. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. It comes like a wave and washes over us. And then verse 18, You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. I'm alone with only darkness for my companion. And that is how the psalm ends. That the darkness doesn't end. So what do we do with that song? Let me just suggest a couple of ways that I think sitting in and feeling that is important for us. First, it should make us stop denying the darkness. We should stop denying the darkness in this world. If anyone should be honest about how painful and scary and hard the world is, it should be Christians. We believe that the earth is broken beyond human fixing by sin and... Um, I mean, I mean, how do, you, how do you think the Bible works, right? I mean, in, in adult ed, we started walking through it. But, I mean, we have this, this book that, like, it's good for two chapters, right? And then humanity rebels against God and is cast out of paradise. And the third human being murders the fourth human being. And from there, things get so bad that, um, that, that you know, some generations later, God just wipes out basically everybody. And then they come back, and they're still terrible. And God calls these people that are supposed to bring salvation. But it's basically just generations and generations of sin and failure and corruption and oppression. And ultimately, God's judgment on that people. And that's the Old Testament. Right? And then the New Testament comes, and we're like, okay, like things are going to be better now, but the disciples are all these idiots that keep missing the point, and, you know, and God comes as a human being, and he gets murdered for it, right? And, and there's the resurrection, and there's hope, but there's also persecution, and sin, and corruption, and division within the church, and of those 12 apostles, 11 of them get murdered, right? And that the, the 12th one, they try to, and when it fails, they just stick him on an island for the rest of his life. And Jesus and the apostles say that's pretty much par for the course. 
Where on earth, in that book, do we get, you know, th- this idea that everything's just supposed to be comfortable and easy, and we should just be happy all the time? Right? Where? <laughs> how can these television preachers, you know, in their suits just promise you, like, comfort and prosperity and use the name of that butchered Savior that we worship to do it? I mean, how... I listen to, like, Christian radio sometimes, and, you know, and they promise that it's always going to be positive and encouraging and comfortable and safe for the family, and I think, like, I thought this was Christianity. <laughs> That's the reality of the religion that we have, that there is goodness and beauty in the world, right? This is not that sort of thing. That's absolutely part of the truth, too. But there is also great darkness and great brokenness. And Scripture is very open about that fact. And we as Christians should be some of the most honest and open people to admitting and acknowledging that darkness in the world. I say all of that to say, really, that if you are in the darkness, that it is okay. Not that the darkness is okay. The darkness is terrible. But that you are not abnormal for feeling the weight of it. That you're not somehow a failure as a Christian or not experiencing what what should be expected in this life. That the Bible acknowledges the things that you're feeling and even gives voice to them in places like this psalm. So we shouldn't deny the darkness. And more than that, we should also share it. We should share the darkness. One of the questions I often ask in the psalms is what does it mean for a group of people to sing this song together? To each other, in a sense. Because that's that's what these are made for, right? Um, And I can't help but think that singing a song like this one together would train Israel, would train God's people, that it is good and appropriate to talk with each other about these things. That we don't need to hide our struggles, but that we can share them with each other. Um, That's... I feel like, again, that's why it's so destructive to live in this world where we think that that faithful Christians are, you know, the happy, smiling guys with the white teeth and the suits that are just so blessed. That, That makes us think that we need to dress up like that when we come to each other, that that's how we need to appear to each other. But we are called to speak of our struggles with each other just as surely as our successes. We are called to share with each other the darkness just as surely as we do our smiles and light. And I'm not saying that we need to talk about them all the time, right? I'm not, I get that, you know, someone passes you at church and it's like, how are you doing? And it's okay to just say, fine, right? But maybe sometimes you should actually tell them. And certainly with those people that we call friends within Jesus' body, with those people that he has placed close to us in relationships, in small groups, in our communities, um, we should share the struggles that we have in our heart. We should share the darkness with them. There is a mysterious way that by sharing those burdens, they are in a sense lightened. Not that they're fixed, but that somehow simply by having other people walk with us in the midst of them, we can find a real comfort. So that's two things we learn about how we think about the darkness from this psalm, right? That we shouldn't deny it, that we should acknowledge it as a real significant part of the world, and that we should share it with each other. There's also two things I think we learn about how we relate with God in this psalm. First, I think that this psalm reminds us that it is good to wrestle with God. That we can wrestle honestly and really with God. 
I mean, where is God in this psalm, right? He is not the one giving the answers. There are psalms where God seems to speak and respond and give hope, but this is not one of them. But he is still there because he's the one listening, the one present with the psalmist as he, um, as he struggles. If the psalmist is an example of something, it should be an example to us that we should share our struggles with God and wrestle with him in the midst of them. I mean, all of this is a prayer to him, right? Verses 1 and 2. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to me. Or or verse 9. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Or verse 13. I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Over and over the psalmist is coming to God in prayer. I think we have this idea that prayer is functional. That's the way I think we think of it as functional. That it's supposed to be, we do this list of things, you know, pray for this list of things, and then we have this list of results, and we've checked it out. It's, it's you know, God bless, you know, my, my family and my, you know, and my children and my neighbors and my friends and me. Amen. And, you know, you make sure you didn't miss anybody. And that's good and fine, but prayer is not at root functional, but rather relational. The main purpose of prayer is as our acted-out relationship with God. It's our opportunity to talk with our Father and share our hearts with Him. And that includes sharing with Him our struggle and discouragement and feelings and darkness. I mean, what is the psalmist doing in this prayer? Yes, he's praying in a sense for deliverance at points. But, but more than that, he's just expressing a complaint and struggle to God. He comes to God though, in the midst of that, and shares his heart and tells him how he feels. Sometimes we have this idea that we have to have this certain fake front when we come to the Lord, that we're supposed to be a certain way when we come to God in prayer. And it is true that we should be respectful. We should acknowledge that he is God and that we're a human being. But we shouldn't come to him and think we need to be put together or something other than we are we don't need to come to him and, you know, and be proper and hide the darkness and the anguish and the struggle in our hearts. He knows all of those things, right? You're not fooling him. Just come to him and share yourself where you are in that relationship. Come. And then the second thing that I am reminded of about God in this psalm is recognize that we have a God who understands. We have a God who understands the darkness. There are a lot of these psalms of lament, like we said at the beginning. And um, like many of the psalms, they are frequently quoted in the New Testament. But um, the main person they are quoted by is Jesus. Almost all of the times the psalms of lament are quoted, it's either by or in reference to Jesus. I mean, here's what I mean. Just look at verse 3 of Psalm 88, all right? I'm going to switch to the English Standard Version because it makes it clearer. But verse 3 is, My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to death, right? That's the language the psalmist begins his complaint. Listen to Jesus. So like John 12, he's looking forward to his death. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Or Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Right? I mean, what do you think Jesus is, is, is expressing but, you know, but, but, but using that language of the song that he grew up singing to communicate his own experience? Over and over, as much as this psalm is about our suffering, it's a psalm that just as equally could be taken up on the lips of Jesus. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm set apart with the dead. 
says our crucified Lord. I've lost my closest friends. I am repulsive to them, he says, as his disciples betray and abandon him. I cry to the Lord for help. Why do you hide your face from me? Father, let this cup pass from me, he prays there in Gethsemane. And then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Which are the words, actually, of another of the Psalms of Lament. The crazy, unique thing about the Christian God is that he is a God who has suffered pain and grief and abandonment and death. That in Jesus, God himself walked in the darkness and bore its full weight and let it wash over him. Seeing that does two things for us. One is that it is part of the source of our hope in the darkness, that there is ultimately an end, right? We have Jesus who walks through the darkness and ultimately is risen and triumphant. And that hope is important, but maybe more important, is that as we see our suffering God, that means that God can be with us in the darkness, beside us as a fellow sufferer, no matter how long it lasts for us. The root problem with how we as Christians confront suffering is that we think that Christianity's main purpose in this life is to fix it right now. That if you have the right theology or a strong enough faith or say the right words or do the right spiritualized self-help method, that poof, it's going to be fixed. Now, Christianity does promise that suffering will ultimately end, and we do need that, right? In the return of Christ and the resurrection and all things made new and restored, all suffering and sadness will end. That's important. Um, final healing, though, for all of us will only come in the resurrection. We can experience the Lord blessing and working in beautiful and miraculous ways, and just thanks for that in this life, but that is not promised to us in this life as Christians. And what is guaranteed is that there will be significant struggle and darkness and pain in this life. Christianity does not promise to fix it, but it does give us the resources we need to walk through it. It does give us the resources we need to walk through it. The promise that God is not just there on the far side of our pain once we're fixed, but that he is here with us in the darkness, beside us and before us and beneath us and behind us. That he is here loving us and holding us and aching with us because he is not a stranger to the darkness, but rather has walked through it before us. And that's why it's so important for us to come and wrestle with God when we're in the darkness. Because he meets us there when we do. Even though it might feel like we're beating against his chest, he is there with us, holding us. So that's the darkness and how this psalmist walks through it. Before we wrap it up, I just want to stress two things. One is that if you are in the midst of the darkness, like we said, please share it. Part of why I think it's so important for us to spend times on parts of Scripture like this one is because I want you to feel permission. If you're grieving, if you're wrestling with depression, if there's that despair in your heart, feel, feel permission to name that thing and share it with somebody you can trust, right? Someone close to you, um, you know, a friend, talk to a counselor, talk to me, but... Um, do share those things, because one of the ways that Jesus meets with us in the darkness is through our brothers and sisters. And then secondly, regardless of where you are at, 
right? I recognize that while all of us will experience dark and hard things in this life, all of us are in different places right now, but regardless of where you are at, be that presence, be that person for whoever you can be. Seek to be that person that walks beside those who are struggling and suffering. And maybe especially um, as I think about my heart walking through this, I mean, one of the, the beautiful things that Elizabeth and I have gotten to experience in this season is, is many people's generosity in listening ears and prayer and all kinds of practical help and people, you know, helping with the kids and cleaning their houses. There's all these ways that people have been with us in this season. And while that doesn't fix the darkness, that has been a deep blessing for us, and we are so grateful. But one of the things that, that I worry about um, is that, like, I know that we are visible and public in a way that means that, you know, that people see us and are quick to kind of move towards us. Um, but one of the things that, that, that worries me is that I also know there are people who aren't that, right? Who are on the fringes of the world, who are hard to see or invisible. And one of my fears is that it's easy to miss people like them. So, so just please join with me in, in looking for those people on the fringes, right? Looking for those people who are walking in the midst of the darkness and seek to be that presence to them.